As we continue tonight in our study in the Sermon on the Mount, so I kind of prepped everybody earlier today, this particular message is one of those that, depending on your theologic bent, normally goes one of two ways. And tonight, because I think it's so very important that we understand the purpose of prayer, the power of prayer, the passion that we should have for prayer, God's plan in prayer, why we even pray in the first place, because there are those who would conclude ultimately that if God knows everything, if God indeed is sovereign, and he is, then what difference does it make whether we pray at all? There are many who believe that. And yet in this disciples' prayer, again, Jesus responding to the question asked by the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus responding, and when you pray, in this manner, therefore, pray. Jesus is reminding us exactly what he thinks about prayer. And of course, he's God. So what he thinks matters to us as Christians. Amen? If Jesus says something and it's about a particular subject, you can take it to the bank that that's God's opinion. And so as we dig in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come again just to sit with you. Lord, that you, Jesus, would speak to us. And we need that, God. Sometimes we do pray some of those crazy things, Lord. Sometimes we don't even believe our own prayers. And God, we just ask that you would instruct us from heaven now as we learn how to pray. And so, God, we put this night in your hands and pray that you would now use it for your plans, your purposes, for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so here in Matthew 6, again in verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he goes on to verse 10, that'll be our focus. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Last week, we saw that Jesus was a prayer warrior. Last week, we saw that uh, we're to be praying in a certain name, because really, if if you're not addressing your prayers properly, Uh, you might find them going to the wrong address. We want to make sure God gets them. So we need to talk to him. If you want to dial somebody up, you know, I I grew up in a day and time where we still had party lines uh, in our little city of of Poway, and you actually went to a switchboard, and there was a switchboard operator, and, and they would actually literally take a little patch bay, and they would pull out your number and plug it into, you know, in my case, most of my family lived on the same street, so if I wanted to talk to Grandma, you know, I could call from our house and call the operator, and could you connect me to, to Mabel Gill, and it'd be, you know, put it in the hole, and you got, hello? You want to make sure you're dialing up the right number. What ad- address is on that prayer that you offer? What, what characteristics? How do you pray? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? And so this time, just two things for you, really God's purpose. God's purpose. God's 
purpose for our prayer because he has purpose for our prayers. And secondarily, what's God's plan for our prayers? And as you think about these things, I I want you to begin this way. How many of you here tonight, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, how, how many of you here tonight believe that prayer actually accomplishes something? I do. But how many of us actually pray as though our prayers go nowhere? You ever find yourself doing that? Oh, we pray. We mouth words. But are we really expecting God not only to hear them, but to answer them? Or are we trying to cajole God? Are we trying to influence God? Are we trying to accomplish our will on earth, not his will on earth? Are we trying to motivate? Are we trying to stimulate? Are we trying to convince? You see, if God's completely omniscient, He's all-seeing. If he's completely omnipotent, he's all-powerful. If he is completely omnipresent, he is everywhere at all times. If he is, and we believe him to be, the sovereign king of all of the universe, and he knows what we have need of before we ask him, isn't it kind of a valid question to ask yourself, why pray? You see, this is the dilemma that people find themselves in when they overemphasize God's sovereignty. And it will ultimately be to that that I want to speak to you tonight. Because there are people who take God's sovereignty so far as to basically make your prayers meaningless. If you are one of those people that are here tonight and you believe that because God's sovereign because he is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, that you really don't need to pray because God's going to just simply do what he wants to do anyway because he's sovereign. If you're one of those folks, I pray you leave tonight with a little different view of God's sovereign power. I will also tell you that the subject matter before us is one of those absolutely divisive areas of theology that has torn apart the church for centuries. On one hand, you have those who believe exactly as I just expressed to you that because God is sovereign, in essence, man's prayers are for the most part either blind obligation because God said to do it, so we're going to do it. We're going to dig the hole and fill it in. We don't know why, but we'll just do it anyway because God's sovereign. There's people on that side, and then there's people on the other side. Then I'm going to tell God what to do. I'm going to reach into that grand grab bag of stuff, and I'm just going to name me some and claim me some. And God's got to do what I say, because I ask it in Jesus' name. And you can see how those two sides are fairly conflictory. Amen? They don't get along well. And so in this part of the disciples' prayer, we're asking the Lord for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. And notice the criteria. 
on earth as it is in heaven. Very central to the thought of this entire concept is that there is a literal kingdom of God. And that literal kingdom of God right now in absolute perfection and fullness does already exist. But it's not here. It's there. And so when you think about God's sovereign plan, you have to also allow for the fact that God has allowed things that we do not understand. Someone tells you that they can fully Uh, convince you of the doctrine of the Trinity, you're probably going to be able to pick apart that argument. Someone tells you that they know how God's sovereign plans and man's free will, choice, and responsibility completely intertwine and interact, uh, that's going to be a tough thing to do in 45 minutes. I have books in my library on this singular subject. I have two of them that exceed a thousand pages each. On this subject. And by the time you get done reading them, your head can spin around 360 degrees. <laughs> you see, first we have God's purpose in prayer Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, God. But what is Jesus actually praying? You see, there is a very specific time when God's kingdom is going to come. He's not talking about something that's ethereal. He's not talking about something that's spiritual. He's talking about something that is quite literal. God's kingdom, his literal kingdom, and you all know when it's going to happen. When the Lord Jesus returns from heaven... At the second coming, he is bringing with him his literal kingdom. And so what's in view here is how should we live our lives looking forward and hastening the glorious appearing of our great God and King. Not some social program to alter the world's course and path. Because no injection of godliness into this messed up world is ever going to make this messed up world Christ's kingdom. This cannot be altered and made into God's kingdom. This kingdom is actually the kingdom of the God of this age. And the Lord Jesus has actually allowed it to be so for a time. But he does not intend for it to be like that forever. So what's the secret here? You see, there's a singular secret to this amazing purpose. What is God's heart for every single person who's ever lived? That all, all should be saved. None should perish. All should come to repentance. You see, what's in view here is people coming to Christ. So central to this whole thought process is the literal kingdom that's going to come. You're going to come back. If if we happen to exit the planet, the rapture happens, and we're gone, we're in heaven, we're coming back with him to rule and to reign. 
as kings, as priests unto our God in his literal kingdom. Don't miss that. A British visitor recorded a little story for Christianity Today a number of years ago and was uh, visiting various worship services, had come from the Anglican Church in England and kind of wanted to see what was going on here in America. This was about four or five years ago. But the story was, was pretty poignant when it gets down to it because, as most of you know, Europe has become post-Christian uh, in many ways, not just post-Christian, but also post-modern at the same time. And so uh, there are very few people who live a vibrant Christianity in much of any of Europe. And, and definitely not in the UK. There are many Christians, but it used, what used to be the absolute norm is now very rare. The Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church, the church that birthed men like Spurgeon, Whitfield, these great men of faith, those that would influence the Wesleys, spur revival across continents. That's not the England of today. And that visitor went to a worship service and commented about churches and they happened to visit a number of churches where there was some prayer and they said this, you Americans are so concerned about being happy that what you pray for constantly is as if your earthly kingdom were the focal point of your prayers rather than God's. Ouch. Can you see why that might be a truth? You ever look at your own prayer life and go, wow, I never really looked at it from that perspective. Am I actually praying for his kingdom to come? Or am I asking, asking God to sanitize what's already here? Now again, we want to pray for change in people's lives, but it is towards a central end, and that central end is that people would come to faith in Christ so we can get out of here. Amen? That's the goal. Christ's kingdom is not going to come until the very last person who's going to be saved is saved. I don't know who that person is. I hope they're here tonight, and I hope you give your life to Jesus so we can go. But... But the goal is to see people come to Christ so we can go home for his kingdom to come. That's how his will will be done. Remember that Jesus even spoke these words. And so in your prayer life, our greatest desire should be to see him ruling and reigning as king. In everything. And of course we see little glimpses of it in our personal relationships. But there is a literal kingdom that's in view here. His program, his plan should be the preoccupation of our lives. It should occupy your thoughts during the day. How many people's relationship with the Lord and especially their prayer life only involve God when there's something wrong or they need something? I hear from a lot of parents, you know, the only time my kids call me is when they need something or something's wrong. That's what we call payback. <laughs> you see, that? That's, what, that's kind of the way we talk to God a lot of the times, isn't it? Do you ever dial up your Heavenly Father to say, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done? Can you 
make it possible for your kingdom to come. Could we see your purposes and your plans accomplished in such a great way that you're done with this earth and the wickedness of it? We're often like tiny little infants that have no other person on this earth they are concerned about other than us. We just, give me what I want. Do for me what I need. And so Jesus is really instructing the disciples here in a very, very wonderful way. And I think one of the greatest struggles that we have in our Christian life is to fight the old sinful habits. To to say, look, those, those things... Those things are not kingdom things. They're not kingdom stuff. They shouldn't be concerning kingdom kids. They're things of this life, of this earth. They're not even issues that really are of the kingdom. And so Jesus says, look, I want you to pray for God's kingdom to come. And so it's our responsibility then to take our selfish prayers Let's be honest, we pray selfishly sometimes, don't we? I do. I do. I don't like conflict. I I pray against conflict. It's like, Lord, could you just break their teeth out of their mouth? (laughs) I'd like to pray David's prayers every once in a while, you know. But they're selfish. I'm not actually looking for God's kingdom to come. I'm just looking to be made right or taken care of or cuddled and, you know, there's nothing wrong with you wanting God to love you. But in the end, that may not actually even be his kingdom's wish. may not be what he's trying to accomplish at all. Maybe you're supposed to be going through that trial. And that will be the second part of this, this whole concept because that's where his will comes in. Can I tell you that it is absolutely 100% of uh, of part of the time, it is absolutely God's perfect will for people to get into difficult situations. Sometimes. But we don't pray that way. We pray for everything to go away. And sometimes, in our praying for everything to go away, we're actually missing the opportunity that God wants to use in our lives to bring forth kingdom things so that we can really pray right and see things correctly and understand and have how many people have learned compassion by pain in their own life? How many people have learned to be gentle and kind and tender and to look at other people first instead of last because God has removed something in your life and here we are, we're praying for those things to go away and God's actually saying, no, actually I want them to go away because I need to take them from you because they're actually God, I'm not. You see, when you're praying for his kingdom to come, you're open to anything and everything that God wants to do in your life, including some stuff that you and I would say, man, I hope that's not his will. I hope that's not what I'm supposed to have. But then we pray with resolution to God, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so really the best that we can pray for in that case is is anything that will hasten his kingdom coming. And sometimes, that's some things we don't like. I think one of the greatest oppositions to Christ's kingdom coming is the fact that this world is so pleasant and comfortable and wonderful at times. And again, I realize that there are undoubtedly people in the crowd tonight 
you're suffering, you're hurting. And I, I mean no disrespect by saying what I just said. I realize those things are hurtful and painful that you're going through. But I can also tell you that the vast majority of Christians' experience, especially in this country, is not something that's all that painful. There are difficult things we go through, hard things that we think about. But in the grand scheme of eternity, no, we're, we're, we're pretty well off. We can almost say that we're comfortable in this kingdom, can't we? Isn't that why we often don't pray for his kingdom? We're too comfortable in this one? I've actually had, especially, and again, please take no offense at this, but I've actually had moms actually tell me that the reason they don't like to study eschatology or anything to do within times is because they want to see their kids get married. Dead serious is a heart attack. You know, I don't, I don't want to hear about that, you know. Now, I have to tell you, theologically, that's messed up. That's whack. Because you're holding back the kingdom coming. No, we want his kingdom to come more than we want to see our kids get married, more than we want to see that new house, more than we want to see that promotion, more than we want to see anything in the universe. That's how we're supposed to be praying, for his kingdom to come. First, foremost, and always, his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Not these other things. We can pray about the other things, but we need to leave them in the hands of a sovereign God who says, if it's my will, then I'll make sure it happens if that's what you need. And I'll try and convince God that you're right and he's wrong. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 14 passage that I've been hitting on a little bit in the last few weeks, but it bears on this subject as well. And the reason that it bears on this subject, now remember, this is really a picture of the fall of Lucifer. It's Satan's downfall, if you will. Verse 12 of Isaiah 14, and it says, How are you fallen from heaven? That's actually a question, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How is it? What happened? How did it happen? How did you fall? How are you cut to the ground, you who weakened the nations? Again, this is a question. And from God's perspective, all questions are rhetorical. He already knows the answer, okay? So he's not looking for information. He simply is drawing our attention to what comes next. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit in the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High God. In other words, I disease. I, 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 I. Self-focused. The universe's first and foremost narcissist right here. I want what I want, and I want what I want to be bigger than what you want, God. And God's response is, yet you should be brought down to Sheol into the lowest depths of the pit. 
You, you see, I will is almost never God's will. Almost never. I hesitate to say never. I think it's probably pretty close to never. But I will is very rarely God's will. Because anytime you can insert the personal pronoun I and then follow it with something that God may or may not approve of, you, you probably want to reverse the order of words. God, if you will. God, if it's your plan, then you bring it to pass. And interesting, the word that's used here for kingdom, basalia, it's a Greek word. It's very, very, very specific. And it doesn't refer to a geographic location. It refers to sovereignty and it refers to dominion. And of course, when Jesus' kingdom comes, when God's kingdom comes to this earth, it is going to be a sovereign dominion in which he is actually king. But right now, we don't see that in our world, do we? We see little glimpses of it. He rules and reigns in us individually. But we don't see the effects of the king and his kingdom here on this earth. We see the effects of the eye disease, the eye will. That's why we see the violence we see. That's why we see the crime that we see. That's why we see the hatred we see. That is why we see the abuse and the absolute perversion of our world is because this is not God's kingdom. And it never will be. Not until the king comes with it. Because that kingdom's in heaven. That's what this says. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. It already exists there. And that's what we're looking for here. In other words, Christ to reign as king. <laughs> Lord, please let it begin with us tonight. Revelation chapter 20, when we get there, we're going to see that kingdom come. We're going to see his millennial reign. We'll see the Lord return in all of his glory and splendor. Can you imagine when the king comes to set up his kingdom and he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives splits in two and the river flows from the east to the west. There's a literal temple and he reigns in the temple in Jerusalem. The Hebrew people will come and worship him and we will be alongside for that glorious journey as his kingdom comes. For a thousand years, that glory will be here on this earth. And then one day, what's going to happen is that kingdom that exists in heaven now, the angels are in it, by the way. It's perfect. It's full of glory. In, it, in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. That glorious kingdom where there's praise constantly issuing forth from the throne of God. This incredible heavenly picture that we've seen as we've studied the book of Revelation, as we see that kingdom come to this earth, then what's going to happen at the end of that thousand years is heaven and earth are going to merge. You see a new Jerusalem coming down in, from the heavens. You, you see what was in heaven and what is now on earth, and those two things become one. And we call that the eternal kingdom, to where his kingdom has fully come. We're to be praying to that end. Can I give you a secret? 
that means we need to be praying for people to come to Jesus and doing everything we can to make sure that people have the opportunity to do that. That's why Jesus is saying, your kingdom come right now, right here. We have it a little bit in a present and a limited way, a miraculous way, really, because you have a little bit of that kingdom going on in you right now. You have some kingdom living that you're doing. Amen? But it's not perfect, is it? So it can't quite be the kingdom, can it? Because I think God's perfect, if I'm not mistaken. I'm pretty sure he's not holy part of the time and unholy part of the time. I'm pretty sure he doesn't put off his righteousness. So when you as a Christian are traveling to Las Vegas and you show up at the casino and you just kind of let your hair down a little bit, that would be what we call a little bit of carnality. God's probably not joining you at the slots, okay? When, when you go to that place that you shouldn't go, that party you shouldn't go, when you engage in that behavior you shouldn't undertake, when you're around those people who absolutely do not have your God-given best interest in mind, you can be fairly certain that the Lord's not in that. So his literal kingdom cannot possibly be here yet. We have little glimpses of it, but it's not something you can just turn off and turn on at will. It either is or it is not. And as of yet, it's not here just yet. It's the great story of Revelation 20 and 21. One day it's going to come. It's going to be amazing. Can't wait for that time. Anybody in here just a little upset with Adam and Eve? I've always kind of had a little bit of a thing for them. It's like, you dirty, rotten scoundrels, you. You know, you, you kind of you think, hey, they had it perfect and they messed it all up for everybody. But one day God's going to remake this whole earth, everything on it, and his kingdom's going to come. What, what got messed up in the garden's going to get absolutely revamped right into the kingdom that God wants and you're going to get to enjoy it for a thousand years. So you will have missed nothing. Isn't God awesome? So if you're like me, you got a little bit of a thing for Adam, and you just want to give him a piece of your mind. I've always wanted to do that. Just walk up. Adam, what were you thinking? Are you, were you crazy? Did you have a lapse of sanity there in the garden? I mean, come on. There was one tree out of six billion trees. You couldn't keep your hands off of it. What is wrong with you? But if we're honest, we don't do any better, do we? Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, you'd all have been snacking on them apples. <laughs> don't disrespect poor Adam. Yeah, we would. That's because his kingdom hasn't come yet. It's not fully here. We still have completely a uh, free will that allows us to engage in the things that suit our nature one way or another. For God to allow us that really is a privilege. And so the first thing in, in this regard, we, we, have to, we have to work at making sure people know Jesus. 
The second thing is we need to be absolutely committed to that end. You, You see the desire of those of us who are already God's kids should be for the fullness of God's rule in our lives. And this is where it gets really important. When we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we're saying a whole lot more than I'm going to heaven. Amen? You you see, he is Savior, but he is also Lord. And Lord, the word roughly, loosely, and most often translated, actually means master. In other words, He's the ruler. Can I say to you that a lot of Christians don't live with Jesus Christ as Lord? They live with him as Savior. They want to go to heaven. They don't want to go to hell. And actually, it's usually the second of those two things that really is more prevalent. Well, I just don't want to go to hell, so I'm giving my life to Jesus. That's a good reason. I'm not disrespecting the reasoning there. Heaven, hell, not that tough of a choice. But with Jesus Christ as your Savior, the natural response of the saved person is for Jesus Christ to be also Lord. For him to rule and reign. And so when Jesus says, when you pray, pray for his kingdom to come, you're actually praying for the totality of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Anybody in here fall a little short with that regard? I do. Tell you straight up. Anybody that tells you differently has got an issue with lying. Right? Think about it. Nobody in this room, I, I don't believe the Lord's with us tonight, literally. He's not actually here. If he is, I'll sit down and he can come up and finish this. I'm sure he'll do it way better than I will. But you see, the point being is if Jesus Christ is Lord then he's ruling in every area. And right now, there's probably some areas in every life in here that we can honestly say we could use a tune-up in the lordship area. Amen? But one day, he's going to be absolutely lord of everyone and everything. There'll be no more sin. There's going to be a rule of righteousness. Complete and total. Interestingly enough, those who get saved during the tribulation, who are not taken up immediately to heaven, they die and the Lord comes, they don't even perish from this earth, and the Lord comes back, they're actually still going to have free will. But they're still going to live for a thousand years perfectly righteous before the Lord. It's going to be a crazy thing. They're going to have children. Those children are going to have free will but they're still going to have to make a choice. And so they're at the very end of the millennial reign of Christ. Gog, Magog, released one more time. Satan given a little bit of an opportunity to kind of do his work there at the very end. And then the merge. Heaven and earth and the full kingdom of God. And so Jesus is speaking about that kingdom when he says, thy kingdom come. Not our human capacity to kind of do some fairly Christ-like things. And the reason I say that, that's the distinction. People often confuse fairly Christ-like things, like church. Well, oh man, it's just like the kingdom. This is nothing like the kingdom. 
Because I guarantee you, probably every person in this room, since you sat down, has had some kind of thought that was at least marginal. Amen? You can say amen. Because you have. You were checking out the lights going, man, those are the ugliest chandeliers I've ever seen in my entire life. I wish Pastor Jeff would grow some hair. You, you thought something. You're looking across at the person next to you and you're wondering, well, why did they wear that to church? Something that wasn't 100% righteous. Can I safely say that you have thought something that was not 100% righteous since you got in this room? I'm pretty sure that's everybody. I wish worship had been longer, would have been shorter. You know, what's he wearing a Hawaiian shirt for? Can you believe that? He's supposed to be a man of the cloth. <laughs> These are Honu, by the way. It's one of my wife's designs, and I like it. So I don't care what you think. <laughs> you see what I mean? We're flesh, aren't we? We are the weirdest things on earth. We're saved, we're redeemed, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and yet we're still like so out there at times. We're like off in a different, we might only be for 10 seconds. We're like, okay, come on back. Come on back. We're over here. But one day, that kingdom's going to actually come. Oh, glorious day. Glorious day. So now God's plan for prayer in the remaining time that we have. Your will, God's will, you see we want his literal, full, complete, total kingdom to come. So the object of our prayer, the purpose of our prayer, is that his kingdom, the fullness of everything Christ is, would come. Here's the plan. Your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. That's the plan. Pretty simple, isn't it? Oh, how hard that is. And so this is where those questions begin to come into our minds. Well, God's sovereign, right? Isn't he eventually going to have his will done? You mean man can mess up God's will? Hmm... Some pretty deep stuff, huh? Why would Jesus ask us to pray for God's will to be done if God's will could not be done? Did you ever think about that one? It is quite possible for us to not do God's will. And I'll prove it to you in a moment. This is a great ar argument between the Calvinists, the Arminians, those who say God's absolutely sovereign no matter what happens, uh, his will is going to be accomplished, and those who say man, in essence, is his own sovereign dominion, and so man just kind of does whatever he wants, and it's, it's okay. Folks, this is what we call a divine paradox. There's two things here, and in the human mind, your finite mind, my finite mind, these things cannot be reconciled. You'll, you'll never come to a full conclusion on these things. But I do believe I can help. What seems to be a hopeless contradiction to us is not a dilemma to God at all. He's not sitting there, man, 
sure wish I hadn't have done this whole sovereignty thing. Don't know why I gave them free will. That was just a real bad move on my part. If I had to do all over again, I'm getting a new Adam and Eve. They seem to be the root of the whole thing. I could have just created perfect people, then it would have all been okay. Can I tell you, there's a few other things you can't explain, like the Trinity, like Jesus being fully God and fully man. I think those are paradoxical, aren't they? There's a lot of things in this universe that we could look at and go, I can't quite figure that one out. But we hold both truths to be true. Amen? So somehow, God must work these things together. If man were not able to make his own choices and God's commands, let me say this very bluntly, if man cannot make his own choices, then God's commands are futile, they are meaningless, they are absolutely punishment, and he is cruel and capricious. If he's commanded us to prayer and asked us to pray for his will to be done, and it's impossible for us to affect anything, anywhere, at any time, in any place, then God's a liar. I don't think that's God. Pretty sure. If God doesn't act in response to prayer, then Jesus' teaching about prayer is equally futile and meaningless. So somehow, a perfect God interacts with an imperfect human being. And it's meaningful. And it has purpose. And it actually does something. But I guarantee you this, you're not telling God what to do. Now you can kind of go your own little way. You can do some things. But God is still absolutely 100% sovereign. You see, the part of the problem is, is we pray for our will to be done and not his will. And that's where the rub comes in. We confuse those two things. And so let me tell you a few things that God's will is not. God's will is not the absolute imposition of a dictator's will on his subjects. Amen? You get that? It, it's not just God in heaven and we're this little, we're this little group of ants. And let's face it, us boys, we're, we're kind of cruel when we're younger. And probably every young man in here has grabbed a magnifying glass. And at the expense of some ant somewhere, there has been a science experiment about focusing the sun's rays on something that was previously alive that is now kind of charcoal. <laughs> but you get the picture, right? You, you, you got them underneath there, and you pull out the magnifying glasses. Like, ha, 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 I have dominion. If you're a Hindu and you're in here, I'm sorry. But what I'm saying is, there's a lot of people look at God like that. He's just outside of space and time. He can do whatever he wants. And so if he just wants to enforce his will on you, he just does it. And you're just stuck with it. Can I tell you, that's not God's will. He absolutely loves us so much that he would never do that to you. He will never, ever, ever force his will on you. He will always allow you, even to the point 
of you spending eternity in hell allow you to choose this day whom you will serve? He's not going to force you to be saved. The fact that we know that is an indicator that God does not override the choices of man. He works with us. He doesn't simply make us capitulate to his will. He, He is so strong that he could force us to capitulate, but he doesn't because he loves us. It would be completely not an act of love if God forced us to do everything his way. And so he doesn't. So anyone that says that what you do doesn't affect the world around you, that ultimately God's just going to have his will done, I'm here to tell you, you're wrong. His will ultimately will be accomplished. But in those individual circumstances where we have acted apart from God's will ourselves, God will allow you to make decisions that absolutely are not his will. It's easy for us to fall into the the category of basically making our prayers meaningless. Because if God was simply going to override everything that you think and everything that you do and every prayer that you ever pray, then Jesus would not have asked you to pray. He just puts you back underneath the magnifying glass and do whatever he wants. But he doesn't do that. In Acts chapter 12, there's a group of concerned disciples there praying in the house of Mary, John Mark's mother, for Peter's release from prison. And while they're praying, Peter was freed. Do you remember the story? Peter comes. Servant girl comes to the door. Rhoda standing there, recognizes Peter's voice, rushes back inside to tell the others, and forgets to let Peter in. I'm kind of thinking she doesn't remember what they were praying for. You look at that whole situation. I don't think that they even believed that Peter was going to be released because there's Peter standing. She doesn't get it. So there are times that we actually pray for things not only apart from what God is going to do, but even when he does it, we don't recognize that he did it. Our own prayer lives are often weak because we don't pray in faith. You see, we pray out of a sense of duty. We pray out of a sense of an obligation. We pray uh, almost subconsciously thinking that God is just and he's just going to do whatever he wants to do anyway. The effective and the fervent prayer of a righteous man or a righteous woman avails, accomplishes, does much. Amen? So that means you actually can have consequences to your prayer life uh, that affect this world. That God is listening. The very fact that Jesus tells us to pray, your will be done on earth, indicates that God's will is not always done on earth. Not His perfect will, just simply His permissive will. Not everyone gets saved, amen? Second Peter 2, chapter 3, Excuse me, verse 9. 
The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Does everyone on this earth always come to Christ? And the answer is no, isn't it? And yet God's will is very clearly that all should. That's what he wants. So his perfect will is that everyone come to faith in Christ. But they don't. That's because of the intersection of our will and his. And he honors our choices. It's not God's will that people die in their sin. They have chosen to walk a path of sinfulness. And sometimes they pay for it with their life. It's not his will that people perish and go to hell. And yet people make the decision to not choose the Lord. It's not his will that sin of any kind exists on this earth. That is mankind's choice following after Satan. It's not God's perfect will, any of those things. He allows them. So make sure you understand the difference between God's perfect will and what he sovereignly allows to happen because he's honoring your free will. He allows all kinds of things to happen. Patient is our God. Unbelievably patient. And those who overemphasize the the other side, the free will aspect of this, they basically look at God as some kind of cosmic vending machine. No matter what I ask him, as long as I ask him in his will, he's got to give it to me. To all kinds of theological bents that are along those lines, and when you think about it, you know, they just name it, they just claim it, they speak it, and so God's got to do it. That's nonsense. God's under no obligation to answer a single one of our prayers. He only graciously allows that as a, as a, as a consolation, in essence, for us being his kids. He says, look, you're my kids. Remember, our Father who art in heaven. We can talk to our Heavenly Father because he loves us. But he doesn't get pushed around by our prayers. It's not like, well, I hit A7, you're supposed to give me that. A7 was a really nice Beamer, 835 with wheels not hardly D6 that was that new job that pays twice what you're being paid right now God may not choose to answer that prayer God is sovereign yet he still tells us pray that his will would be done we're supposed to pray for his will to be done That's where we join him in his plans. That's not where we try and convince him that ours are good. And I've prayed for some things and I've looked back on it. It's like, oh, thank you, Lord, you didn't answer that prayer. It's so awesome to know that you're sovereign, God, and I'm not. Because if you'd answered that prayer, I'd be a dead man right now. You'd have given me that thing. You've gotten me out. You've gotten me out of that situation. And family of God, I can tell you that some of those things that would have been on my prayer list to try and influence God were painful, hurtful things, very difficult things. It's like, Lord, 
Deliver me from this. Undo that. Fix this. Or, or one of my previous former types of things I used to pray for. Lord, just give them a beat down. You know, you know what they said. You know what they did. Whoop on them. Take care of it, God. And I look back on it, man, was I so wrong to pray that prayer. And God wasn't influenced in the slightest to go against His will. He just didn't let me accomplish my will. He's not that mean guy in the military that tells you to dig a hole and then fill it in. Everything God does, He does with a purpose. Whether He says yes, whether He says no, or whether He says wait, because now's not the time. So what is the correct meaning of God's will? David in the 103rd Psalm prayed it this way, Bless the Lord, you angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. If you want to pray properly in the will of God, let me give you a secret how you can be accurate 100% of the time. Pray for His word to be accomplished in your life, whatever it is. Wherever you can find His word speaking to any issue of life, and it is clear that that applies to your life, you simply pray for His Word to be enacted in your life. You're praying 100% of the time in God's will. So if it's a sin issue and the Bible tells you not to do it, secret, don't do it. If it's an issue where God has clearly spoken, we're to have an opinion about some particular issue in life, and God has an opinion on that issue, like innocent life. Read Proverbs chapter 6, those things which God hates. Feet swift to shed innocent blood. I can tell you it's 100% accurate that God doesn't want us shedding innocent blood. You can pray perfectly in God's will. Lord, help me to live that way. So wherever his word comes in contact with our lives, if we pray for that and then live that, you're going to be accurate 100% of the time. Our prayer should be every person, everything on this earth would be brought into conformity to God's word. little secret, if you make that your aim in your prayer life, you're going to have a lifetime of praying about things properly. You pray what God's word already says about that circumstance and situation, and you pray that part of his word into your life. Part of a right understanding, right attitude towards God's will. It really, I think you can call it kind of righteous rebelliousness. I know that sounds like a contradictory statement. But we're rebelling against the things of this world. And so you want to be accurate? Rebel against the things of this world. Have the opposite view of the world, and you're going to be praying fairly precisely. Because this world is ruled by the God of this age. And so if you want to know what God thinks, and you know that God's word says this and the world does that, you can stick over here. Amen? God's will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, God only has one opinion in heaven. He's not up there. Well, I used to think that. He's not like politicians. 
well, my thoughts have evolved. <laughs> my position on that has evolved. It's, it's changed. I used to be for children, but now I'm not for children anymore. God's always had one opinion on those things. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not, says the Lord. So as we pray in those things, we're actually asking for God to accomplish in us a very specific line of reasoning. There's three distinct components. I'll leave you with this tonight. When God reveals His will to us in His Word, He has what I like to call the will of purpose. He has the will of desire, and He has the will of command. The will of purpose, the senior most of all these components, might be His absolute will. In other words, His vast, comprehensive plan that tolerates the entire universe, but He has something that He has decided is the very best for the entire universe. So His will of purpose. He has a purpose in the universe. He has a purpose on this earth. He has a purpose in heaven. He has a purpose in hell. There is a purpose for everything from God's perspective. The purpose of His absolute perfect plan. Isaiah the prophet wrote about it in Isaiah 14. For the Lord of hosts has said, sworn... Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand. God has a perfect plan. There is literally a perfect plan for absolutely everything. One component. Second component. The will of what I like to call is righteous desire. In other words, because we have free will, God actually has a desire for us to accomplish that will of purpose. There's something he wants from you, wants from me, would like for us to pray. But that will is not always accomplished. Probably every one of us in here could name probably a dozen things in our lives where we have had two choices we've chosen wrongly. Amen? And you've lived long enough to suffer through those decisions. There is a perfect will of purpose. In other words, God wanted you to do this, but he gave you a choice. You chose to do this, and so that will of purpose was violated. There's his absolute will, his will of purpose. Here's the choices. You can make either one. You're not a robot. And so God's will of purpose is that you can take either of these things because he's made you in his image so that you can love him And so he's given you volition. He's allowed you to do what it is that is in your purpose of heart, your desire. But he has a desire for you. That is perfect. Your desire, not so much. So God has a will of purpose. And then finally, the third piece is the will of command. Now think of these things. He has a perfect plan, he has his desires for you, and he has the will of his command. In other words, he's actually spoken to us in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of topics, situations, and things by his word. Amen? All kinds of things. If you want to know whether you're supposed to marry an unbeliever, the answer is no, Be ye not unequally yoked to an unbeliever. For what has light to do with darkness or Christ to do with Belial? You get it? 
God's will of command, He's already told you, dummy. And I'm making it sort of humorous so you can realize that God must think of us that way. It's like, oh, these poor people. Because sometimes we don't do what we're supposed to do, amen? God has a will of command. The Apostle Paul in Romans 6 said it this way, verse 16. Do you not know, Paul said, that when you present yourself as someone's slaves for obedience, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey? No man can serve two masters, didn't Jesus say? So whoever you follow, that's your master. You get to choose. The will of command. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient in the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. You see, God's command is live right. That's the will of his command. So when you're praying for his will to be done, the greatest enemy in all of this is our own pride, isn't it? You see, we need his will of purpose. We need his will of desire. We need his will of command. And as you do those things, you start to synchronize all the parts. Because he does have a perfect plan. 100%. He does have a perfect desire for you. Something he would choose for you. If God were choosing 100% of everything that goes on in your life, he would choose it this way. That's his will of desire. And then finally, his will of command. He's already told you what many of those things are. And so if you want an effective prayer life, you're praying for his kingdom to come. And you're praying for his will to be done. Whether that will is simply his perfect plan, whether that will is you do not do what your own will is, but you do do what his will is, the will of desire, or whether that is he's already spoken those things and we simply need to be obedient to it. If you'll pray like that, you'll have a very effective prayer life. Amen? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had in your word tonight. Lord, a a difficult subject for us to even think on, Lord. It causes us stress and strain in our brains. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us conformity, Lord, to that will of purpose. Lord, you do have a perfect, a marvelous plan that you'd give us a will to follow your absolute desire, Lord, and not our own, so that there'd be one master, one Lord in our lives, not two. Lord, that we wouldn't follow you 80% of the time and follow our own dictates 20% of the time. Lord, would that be 100%? And Father, would we always follow your word Lord, your will of command. And so, Lord, where it's commanded, where you have given us an absolute understanding, may that be the focus of our prayer life. Lord, we thank you that you've made prayer something that that is meaningful and purposeful. And, Lord, it's not hollow. It accomplishes things in the halls of heaven that we'll not fully understand until we get there. And so, God... 
We pray that you'd cause us to, to pray effectively for your kingdom come and for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We bless your holy name, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for making us a part of your kingdom by your blood. And all God's people said, Amen.